when we first started Ren, you know, we were college students, we're not climate scientists, we're not policymakers, and, and we really had this itch to figure out, like, what can we do about the climate crisis? And what can any individual do about the climate crisis? Hey team, I'm a day late, but happy International Women's Day. Shout out to my mom, who teaches a sustainability course to her seventh grade students. And while I'm not a teacher with 30 years of experience, I'm your host, Nathan Sfee, and I'm on a journey to bring the world closer to net zero emissions. This is the second episode of The Net Zero Life. If you haven't had a chance yet, definitely go check out episode number one with Dan White. He is a trailblazer in the climate space and his company Signal helps nudge the world closer to net zero. On today's show, we dive deep into the world of carbon offsets with Mimi Trans and Betty, co-founder of REN. REN is a public benefit corporation dedicated to helping end the climate crisis. They help you calculate your carbon footprint and then easily offset your emissions through programs like tree planting and rainforest conservation. Mimi and her two co-founders launched REN in 2019 and participated in Y Combinator shortly thereafter. For those who aren't familiar with Y Combinator, it's a famous startup incubator that has helped launch companies such as Airbnb, Stripe, DoorDash, Instacart, Dropbox, Coinbase, Reddit. I'm impressed. Heads up, Mimi and I refer to Y Combinator as YC throughout the show. Just a few things to know before we jump into the episode. As said previously, for this episode and for all other ones, everything you hear on this show is my own opinion and is not representative of my employer. Effective altruism is a philosophical movement that encourages people to take action that does the most good. We also touch on the key principles of carbon offsets, additionality, permanence, double counting, monitoring, and verification. Mimi does a great job of explaining them, so I'll leave it to her. Mimi, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. Should I buy carbon offsets? What is the carbon offsets? Ren, all of the above. Before we get there, though, can you let me know how to properly pronounce your name and your title? Sure. My name is Mimi. Do you want my full name or just my first yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, full name. name would be great. Okay. My name is Mimi Transambetti, um, and I am a co-founder at Ren. Awesome. Can you tell me about like your last name? Where does it come from? What does it mean? Yeah. So actually, my name used to be, I changed my name. My, I was born in Vietnam. My name was originally Le Tan Ngoc Cham. So Le is my last name, Tan is my middle name, Ngoc Cham is my first name. And then I moved here um, with my mom and my stepdad. And eventually when I turned like, I think 13 or 14, uh, my dad was like, okay, let's file adoption papers and you get to change your name. Um, what do you want your name to be? And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I guess I'll just do like Mimi Lee, which is what I'd been going by. Mimi is a nickname. And um, this was getting really off track, but <laughs> my dad was like, no, I'd love to, for you to have Zambetti. And my mom was like, hey, if she gets your name, like she should get my maiden name. So I was like, okay, cool, like trans Zambetti. And then when I was getting my name changed, I was at the judge and he was like, hey, do you want like a hyphen between your name or like a middle name? And I was like, oh, I just haven't thought about it. Like, just like leave it, leave, leave the space, I guess. And like, to this day, everyone like either puts a hyphen in my name or like puts Tran as my middle name, but I don't know, I don't mind it. That's awesome. I mean, not very many people get to choose their name. Uh, would you would you go through it again? Do you think you'll... you'll... It's pretty cool. I think it's it, it was a little bit strange because 
the primary reason why I didn't want Zambetti to be my only last name was because I didn't want to be last in the row of lockers at my high school. And so I was like, okay, T is like not that far down. So I don't know, maybe I would have chosen differently if I wasn't in high school and worried about locker placement. Yeah. So funny how like small decisions uh, really have like long-term impacts, but awesome. And then what about Ren? So you're co-founder of Ren. Why the name Ren? What does it mean? What does it stand for? How many iterations did you guys think of before coming up with that? Yeah. So actually what we did was we just went to a coffee shop for a day and brought like a stack of like 200 post-its and wrote down like all the names we could possibly think of. We had like Grove and Mariposa and like Ponderosa, like all these like tree and like sustainable names. And we also had another tab open that was just looking up like domain name availability. And we just wanted a a name that was going to have some kind of like, uh, like clear namespace on the internet where there was going to be some name recognition. It wasn't going to overlap with like I don't know, Grove would obviously be like kind of a difficult name to name your startup. So we eventually just found Renz and what was appealing about us, uh, to us about Renz is, um, they're really small birds, um, but they're very common. And so that's sort of something that felt close to the mission of the company is being able to, um, help like small individuals or not necessarily small individuals, but individuals feel as though, you know, collectively they can have an impact, um, and project rent is available. So (laughs) It was, it was a mix of uh, practicality and uh, pragmatism and uh, appeal. Love it. So Project Ren, the website is now ren.co. Who owns ren.com uh, and why did you guys change? Oh, I'm not sure who owns ren.com. The internet domain space is like very, it almost feels like the wild west, but on the internet. Um, we got ren.co, I think for a few thousand, but I'm pretty sure ren.com would be like half of what we raised in funding. Um, yeah, we got projectren.com. Um, it's really good to get a .com for your company if you're like just starting out. Um, but we wanted it to be a slightly shorter domain name and something that just fit with our brand a little bit more. I think whenever people say like Project Ren, they don't take it like as seriously as just like, oh, Ren, this is the brand. Um, so that's why we switched to Ren.co. Maybe one day we'll buy Ren.com and go through like the internet middlemen to figure out how to get it. I love it. I love it. Uh, and so you talked a little bit about your first funding. You guys are a Y Combinator graduate, right? Very impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, What was that like? Do you feel any pressure from being a YC? I mean, we've got Dropbox, DoorDash, so many of these like great San Francisco and Silicon Valley startups come from YC. When you put it that way, yeah, I guess I do feel a little bit of pressure. Um, At the start of YC, they put you in a room with like the 150 or 200 other companies that are part of um, that batch. And they say like, yeah, in this room, there's going to be one or two unicorns, like guaranteed. And like everyone else will be like either like a pretty well-to-do company or a lifestyle business or will like totally fail and disappear off the face of the earth. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. Um, but I think, you know, YC, YC was a really amazing experience. I don't think we'd be here without Y Combinator because um, we originally... I don't know how far back you want me to go, but we originally got in when we were still in school. So I was a junior in college and my two co-founders were seniors and that instantly guaranteed like, okay, wow, we can spend the summer working on our company and like actually make it something. We have money, we were, you know, we're legit. Um, And so it really provided this kind of stamp of approval that we needed to convince our parents and our teachers and, you know, our friends that like, it was okay for us to just like go and work on our company for three months straight and see where it would go. Um, And then obviously the mentorship from the YC partners was super critical in helping us decide, you know, what are the important goals to set for the first week, the second week, you know, the first month, how do you fundraise? Um, So it was super critical and, and really, really helpful. 
That's awesome. Uh, and not only that, but I will say we're jumping around a little bit here, but uh, Ren is in the media. So uh, Green Tech Media has a podcast called The Interchange and uh, Shale Khan shouts out Ren as like one of this like new uh, innovators in terms of consumer-based purchasing of carbon offsets. So uh, I, I have to say like very impressive, like already named brand in, in like a short time. Do you think you guys did something special? Like why are you guys already like the, the talk of the town in the consumer-based purchasing of carbon offsets? That's so interesting. I, I haven't actually, I didn't realize that we were in green tech media as yeah, a shout I'll out. Thank you notes. whoever yeah. shouted us out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, selling carbon offsets isn't particularly new. I mean, it's been around for decades. But when we first started Ren, you know, we were college students, we're not climate scientists, we're not policymakers. And, and we really had this itch to figure out, like, what can we do about the climate crisis? Um, and what can any individual do about the climate crisis? And so we came across Drawdown, which is... Um, an organization that aggregates and reviews climate solutions and realize like, wow, like a lot of these climate solutions already exist. Um, many of them in the form of carbon offset projects and, and they just need scale. Uh, they just need funding to scale up. Um, and so that's so, sort of where the original idea came about was, was realize like, wow, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are already happening. And like, we, we don't know about them. Like they're not very mainstream. We don't know how to go about funding them. We don't know which ones are trustworthy or transparent or, you know, which ones are going to be effective. Um, and so we started Ren because we realized like a lot of the companies already in this space either are more, you know, geared towards corporate offsets or, you know, compliance offsets. And, and there weren't many that sort of felt friendly and accessible and, you know, as easy to understand as like signing up for a Spotify subscription. So that was sort of the genesis of it. And I think part of the reason why people find Ren appealing is, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to use in some ways than other tools out there. And, um, we really are committed to trust and transparency and, and being able to not make it feel like, you know, you're just giving money to a charity and it's a black hole and you never hear back again about where your money is going, how it's being spent. Um, so it's really more of like a subscription-based way to act on climate. And right now it is just like a carbon offset subscription, but um, there's a little bit more coming. Uh. I love it. I can't wait to hear more about it. Maybe maybe we'll touch on it later. Uh, and we'll definitely get to talk about like what are offsets and what are important to know. But because we're here, how do you guys build trust? Uh, I think in, in doing my research, I know I should say, uh, trust is like the biggest, it's the fulcrum of, of this like future market. So how do you build trust with your customers or subscribers? Yeah, I think the ideal way to do carbon offsets and all of the projects on our platform are sort of follow the same philosophy is to basically make it so transparent that it's indisputable. Like if you're able to, um, you know, you don't need to trust some kind of third party that the carbon offset is accurate. Like you can transparently see yourself that it's working. So for example, for our regenerative agroforestry project, their goal is to get photos of every single tree that they plant um, and that the, the land they manage at a certain inter interval corresponding to GPS coordinates. Um, and then also rely on satellite imagery. So you can like clearly see for yourself without needing to know, you know, like buy a flight to Scotland and drive out to the property to see like this is happening. Um, and so each of our projects sort of is trying to achieve this level of granularity and data and updates so that our users feel confident that their carbon is being sequestered or removed from the atmosphere, prevented from going into the atmosphere. Yeah. And, and so like mon monitoring and verification, right? Huge part of the carbon offset life cycle. Do you guys do that? Do you rely on someone else to do that? Yeah. So 
right now we mostly get data from the projects directly and then a couple of our projects are verified by third-party standards so our community tree planting project that operates out of east africa and india is verified by vcs um, or it's, it's on the vcs by vera and then one of our other projects is seeking gold standard certification another one of our projects is i think and this is a fair point is um basically uncomfortable with being associated with third-party verifiers just because of the um, past history of fraudulent offsets. And so they're just trying to distance themselves from those kinds of brands. So I think it's, it's a complicated, it's kind of gets really quickly into the nuanced issue of um, offsets and how do you verify them and like whether or not you want to rely on a third-party standard or if you want to rely on data coming from the project themselves. Got it. Okay. So I think this is a perfect transition. Let's back up a little bit. What is a carbon offset? What are the first principles of carbon offsetting that uh, I would need to understand before buying or just in general? Yeah. So a carbon offset comes in a lot of forms, um, but basically the easiest way to explain it is it's a, a, an effort to counterbalance some amount of your carbon emissions. So um, there's two ways to do a carbon offset. Either you remove carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere. So that's whether that's like by tree planting or direct air capture and other negative emissions technologies, or by preventing future carbon emissions from ever reaching the atmosphere. So those are basically like a common carbon offset project that you might see in the news is tree planting. Um, direct air capture also gets, I think, a lot of recognition. Then there's projects like clean cooking fuels, which basically provide more energy efficient cook stoves. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different yeah. types of carbon offsets. And so Ren, Project REN right now has four projects, I believe, available right now. That So how yeah. did you, if there's like a wide swath of carbon offset projects to choose from, how did you guys decide to focus on uh, reforestation, cooking stoves, all the above? Yeah, so we really, we first started out with rainforest protection, um, the project that's in partnership with the Rainforest Foundation. And that one was, I think, you know, forestry projects are, I guess... Yeah, let, let me back up, let me back up. So I, I guess really the, the, what we wanted to do when we first started REN was find the most trustworthy and transparent projects at a reasonable cost for a user. So most of our projects are you know, between $15 and $30 per ton of CO2 sequestered. Um, and they definitely offer a reasonable level of transparency where we felt as though you know, the project partners were going to be able to provide us with imagery and um, text-based updates on a monthly basis. And so that's sort of how we went about it was we just first decided, okay, let's pick a couple of projects that we think are trustworthy and transparent and make sure that they're, you know, geographically diverse enough that um, they offer some form of like diversity there. And then also in methodology, they're kind of different users feel like, oh, there's some variety and I can, you know, like I can connect more to clean cooking fuels and providing, you know, refugees in Uganda with um, more efficient cook stoves and cleaner cook stoves, or, oh, I, I'm really attached to rainforest protection. Like I feel better supporting a project there, or, you know, even like I'm based in Europe and I'd rather have like a, a local project that I feel like, you know, isn't happening in some far off place. Like I'd rather support my Scotland project. Um, so that's sort of where the, we wanted to go for diversity. It was a mix of most trustworthy and transparent offers some diversity in location and methodology. And then, yeah, that's, that's sort of where we started. And we also have the REN Climate Fund, which just sort of aggregates all of the projects together and um, not really takes the choice away from the user, but makes it easier for a user to, to decide like, okay, I feel, I don't necessarily know exactly which project I feel most attached to. Like, let me just support this mix of projects. 
Yeah, and, and so, so so much to jump in here, but are you familiar with GiveWell by chance? Yeah, definitely. Right, so effective altruism, I think, is an interesting parallel here. Uh, GiveWell has the GiveWell fund, right, where they decide to distribute, the, and, and I think uh, the REN fund is kind of similar, and we'll put the show notes all about GiveWell. But why decide, why, why go through like a, a consumer-based for-profit, as I understand, model, as opposed to like a charitable giving effective altruism? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to answer that question, you kind of have to, we kind of had to go back to, to the original, I guess, goals of REN. So I think when we started, we knew, you know, okay, the climate crisis is a big problem and we want a company that grows quickly and we don't want to be hindered by our business model. Um, you know, by structuring as a nonprofit, we have to ask constantly ask ourselves, like, how can we raise additional funds? We're dependent on donations. Um, and we knew that we also wanted to grow like a startup, but there are like historically a lot of issues with that model of like, you know, build fast and break stuff. Um, and after all that thinking, the outcome ended up being a public benefit corporation, which sort of allows us to place profits and mission on the same level. Um, and you can, you know, you can look at our website and see a legally binding charter. You can see the first year of our financials, like all the stuff that you'd find at a normal nonprofit um, that we sort of hold ourselves that standard. But at the same time, we're able to, you know, bring in 20% of subscriptions to reinvest into like ads and hiring talent that would normally go to like Facebook or Google or, or companies that can afford that level of talent. Yeah, I love that. And so do you think, are you going to get the best of both worlds by being a B Corp? I think so. I think, well, we're actually not a B Corp yet. So we're going to seek B Corp certification, but a public benefit corporation is actually a legal structure. Um, so instead of like a C corporation or a nonprofit, we're a public benefit corporation, which is a legal structure that was also created by B Labs, which created B certification. Okay. And so sorry. Um, you are going to be searching for, uh, looking for B Corp status? Certification, yes. Certification. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. You talked about pricing. So you said most of your carbon offsets are 15 to $30 a ton. What goes into that price? Yeah, so it's it depends on each project. So for our clean cooking fuels projects, um, when they weren't really quite off the ground yet, all the costs basically went into um, operations. So just like f buying these uh, briquette producing machines. Well, I guess we have to get into methodology there. So I'll, I'll be a little bit more general. So basically for each project, it'll, it'll depend on operational costs. Um, and then like any land costs that go into purchasing land or um, like tools that are needed for the project itself. So maybe a more specific example would be our regenerative agroforestry project in Scotland. And so part of the cost goes into land management um, and stuff as specific as like fencing to keep out like certain critters and um, that kind of thing. And so how do you keep the costs consistent, right? Like I imagine with anything, it's like there's variables, right? Whether it's seasonality or like what's happening in the world. Did like did coronavirus affect the price per ton at all? Or these these um, carbon offsets will continue to be 15 to $30 for the rest of their uh, livelihood? Yeah, I mean, it depends. We've had one of our projects, um, our community tree planting project in partnership with the International Small Tree Planting Group, um, has varied in costs. Like they basically talked to us like a few months ago and they said, Hey, like our cost per ton is increasing by like a dollar because like labor costs are, you know, rising or operational costs are rising. Um, 
can you let your users know? And so we just let our users know. We said like, hey, cost per ton for this project is rising. Do you want to continue supporting this project? Um, do you want to increase your subscription to offset the same amount of carbon that you were offsetting before? Do you want to keep it at where it was? And so we just have to, you know, it's dynamic. The market's dynamic. So you have to keep in touch with your users and, and be transparent that, you know, prices are changing and we can't just keep them at a fixed cost. Yeah. And so what were, are your customers price sensitive? Did you see any like attrition, increase in donations? What happened? Yeah. So for the most part, our customers, I guess, to be transparent, like we have approximately 98 to 99% retention month over month. So our users don't really churn that much. And one, I think our users really do appreciate that kind of transparency of, and, and that like option that we give them of like, okay, we can either easily increase your subscription to offset the same amount of carbon that you did before, or you can just keep it at the same amount or leave or, you know, do whatever you want to do. Um, but users do like, you know, being able to keep offsetting the same amount of uh, carbon that they were offsetting before. So we haven't really seen any churn from change in prices. Interesting. Yeah. And so 15 to $30 is kind of like a narrow range of price per ton. But from my research, there's like a wide swath, like right up to $600 a ton, kind of like more of these moonshot projects. Why did right. you guys choose to focus uh, in this cost range? And is that like the right amount that I should be looking for when I'm trying to purchase my own carbon offsets, whether through REN and or... Yeah, it really depends on what you're trying to do with your money and climate. Um, and actually, to be clear, our our I was or to be more precise, our range of cost per ton is between twelve and thirty two dollars. Actually, I misspoke earlier. When our community tree planting project, I think, is twelve dollars per ton. Yeah. So the reason why we are keeping around fifty or twelve to thirty two dollars is because we're just trying to average like about a twenty dollars subscription for an average American to offset their whole carbon footprint. Um, and obviously the subscription amount will vary based on where you live or what your lifestyle is like, you know, it, it ranges between like a $5 subscription to like a hundred dollar subscription. Um, but the, the cost per ton sort of manages to keep it at a sort of a reasonable subscription amount that feels more like, you know, a nice lunch in San Francisco or, you know, like two Netflix subscriptions or something like something that feels manageable and easy to understand uh, and contextualize in your budget. And then you know, we didn't really consider the $600 per ton subscriptions like, you know, direct air capture um, because those are going to be really hard to use to offset your full footprint. You know, like when you're funding um, negative emissions technologies, you're not necessarily buying carbon offsets for yourself. Like you're really helping fund infrastructure to decrease future costs of, um, you know, carbon removal using that technology. And it didn't, doesn't feel, it didn't really match what we were sort of going for initially, which was just, you know, you calculate your carbon footprint and you're able to offset it um, for a reasonable price per month. Yeah. This is, uh, so should I only be offsetting my equivalent of carbon footprint? We'll get into calculators a little bit. Uh, I'm excited to talk about that. But just um, going back to the effect of altruism, uh, you know, there's the like biblical tithing of like donating 10%, right? But then there's this like donate to like up to like 40%, 50%, whatever you, whatever you need to live and donate everything after. So why say like, here, here's a calculator. This is what your emissions are. Just donate this amount. Like why not say, Hey, like you could, like you, you should donate really like 10% of your, or sorry, you should offset equivalent to 10% of your income. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, that's why? super interesting. Yeah. I think, I think talking about purchasing offsets for your whole footprint 
really does get into like how how do you help an individual understand the climate crisis? Like how do you help boil down this super complex problem um, and make it feel like something that you can personally take some responsibility for, or act on yourself and, and have like a, a reasonable impact. Um, and so that's sort of why we started with this calculator. Um, so you're able to calculate your carbon footprint, see what your impact is, see where your large emissions categories are and decide like, okay, maybe I want to offset, you know, just my transportation or, or like, you know, about 50% of my footprint or 200% of my footprint, um, because I'm offsetting for myself, um, and being super conservative about it, conservative about it, or, you know, offsetting for myself and, and my spouse or partner or whatever, um, but, you know, there's different ways to look at offsets. You, you can look at offsets as like the last thing you do after you've gone through the due diligence of reducing your carbon footprint. Or you can look at offsets as like just another way to act on the climate crisis and fund, you know, climate solutions that have an impact today, too. So it really depends on, I think, the mindset that people come into when they think, OK, I'm ready to buy carbon offsets. I'm going to go calculate my footprint. I'm going to go offset, you know, what I can't reduce. Or they come into the situation thinking, okay, I need to act on the climate crisis. I have $20 per month. I'm going to, you know, offset that equivalent amount. Um, so I think, I think it can go both ways. I think you can just, you know, as long as people are, are taking action in some form, um, that's a great place to start. Yeah. Right. So I don't know if I really answered your question. No, you definitely did. We'll, we'll keep hammering on it. So talking about calculators, uh, and I want to make sure I get this right. So, uh, according to Ren, Annually, I'm 23.5 tons of CO2e. I, are those numbers right? I wouldn't know your personal carbon footprint. I don't know your lifestyle. But did I get the right, I get the right order of magnitude? Is it 23,000 or 23 tons? 23 tons of carbon dioxide equivalents. Okay. And so if we're talking about like $15, $30, I can offset my entire annual footprint on the world for, like you said, you know, the, the cost of a Netflix subscription per month or something like that. It would probably be a bit more, more. since 23 tons Three is times. a little bit on the higher end. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that was so interesting. Um, so Ren, I was 23 on another website. I was 12.6. Uh, and not only that, but what I loved about Ren's versus uh, another calculator was you guys had things like consumption purchases, whether that's like furniture or household goods and clothing. Something I was curious is about it included health insurance and phone bills. So like, how do you guys calc how did you create the calculator? What goes into it? What data sources are you guys using to determine my carbon footprint? Yeah, so it's primarily based on Berkeley's cool climate um, carbon calculator. And so their model is really quite accurate for the US footprint. And so we use that model um, and then scale it for other countries based on World Bank data. So looking at per capita emissions in other countries and scaling, um, then applying the model to, to that number. So the reason why you see services in the calculator is you could sort of consider it, I mean, in, in, um, in corporate offsets or corporate calculations, you'll hear about scope one, scope two, and scope three. And so services you can think of as, as like a scope three personal emission where, you know, you pay for a Netflix subscription each month. That means that in like a very fractional way, you're responsible for the lights that you, that are used to keep the Netflix office open and, um, the emissions that are generated there. And so it's, it's very much like a, a, like far, far, far removed emission from what you can actually control from your day-to-day, -day, you know, diet or transportation. Got it. And to get like nerdy for a second here, uh, is the Berkeley climate model, is it economic input output based or is it like life cycle analysis? 
That's so interesting. I actually, I'll have to get back to you on that. Um, I don't remember. Okay, it's been no so long since I first built the calculator. Yeah, no, no worries. So you're the one who built the calculator? Uh, Landon, my, my co-founder and I did, yeah. Okay, awesome, awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll circle back and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Uh, and we'll explain what economic input and uh, life cycle analysis, all that good stuff sure. is. Um, great, so going back to tons, right? So we're, we're pivoting uh, or just the, the pitch centers around my uh, the amount of missions I have on a yearly basis but are you like pitching people to do it like hey you could offset your annual on a monthly basis I guess I'm just curious like why start there as opposed to like starting at a price point maybe that customers are like more or, or people are, are more readily available to enter into I'm not sure I understand the question are you saying why yeah. start at so like like a monthly subscription of $20 or or why not start at like a $5 subscription that's like flat Yeah let me let me clear it up a little bit why sure. like the, so the first pitch like my connection in terms of like how much should I spend on this service right like if I'm going to subscribe to Netflix like I know I should be paying around 10 to $20 per month but if I want to subscribe to to carbon offsets and I've never done it before I I'm not price sensitive in the sense that like or I'm not like price aware I'm not an informed consumer Right. And so my entry into it is, is directly related to my footprint. At least that's the way Ren is doing it right now. Mm-hmm. But wh- why not just start at like a regular, like a uh, subscription model? Just like, Hey, just contribute $40 a month. Yeah. I think we, we did used to have this option on the site where you could enter like a custom amount that would say like, you know, if you want to just, if you know, you have $10 to spend every month and you want to start somewhere, like you could just put in $10 and, and go from there. Um, but what we found is people are really, I think, excited about the personal connection they have to their carbon footprint, where it feels really like, okay, I emit, you know, 16.5 tons per year. Let me go and offset 50% of that. Cause that's, that's, I know it's going to be like really hard to have my footprint already. And I, I just want to offset like the other 50%, um, and get like an exact price there. And, and it feels like there's fewer magic numbers where it's less like, okay, like I'll just put in. and that's going to get me like half a ton. Um, Like, where do I, where do I go from there? And I think there's, there's some element of it feeling more personal and, and more tangible when it's exactly catered to your footprint. What about like the location of projects? is there any connection in terms of do if I, I live in the U S should I want my projects to be in the U S like I want to breathe cleaner air here or yeah. And so like right now, all of, pro, all of Ren's projects are outside the U S. Yeah. It's really a matter of personal preference. I mean, we have heard like, Oh, I would love to see a project in the U S and we just haven't really found a project in the U S that we'd love to bring on to Ren yet. I mean, there's definitely, definitely a couple that, that we have our eyes on, um, but really the projects that we picked are just the best projects that we found. Uh, and that's best sort of, determined by what that's determined by best. That's like, like, how do you define the best? Oh yes. Just the most transparent and the ones okay. that, um, you know, we could have an open channel of communication with, with the project partners so that, you know, like if users have questions, they can contact the project partners directly. Um, you know, there's like a phone number and email they can go to and, um, they get updates regularly from us. Got it. Additionality. Can you explain what that is? How does that play into your project specifically? Yeah. So additionality is very much, I hadn't heard of it before entering the carbon offset world, but basically um, a project is only considered additional if it wouldn't have happened without 
the money that's coming from the carbon offset purchase. Uh, so for example, like a really good carbon offset project is actually like pretty much not economically viable on its own and would have little incentive to pursue except for the impact on climate change. So like, for example, direct air capture is hugely expensive and there's like not really any reason you should be running these like energy intensive machines to get a carbon out of the air, except for the fact that like, you know, they remove carbon out of the air, which is good for climate. Um, and so additionality, for example, wouldn't be it, a project wouldn't be additional if you know land is already being like forest is being already protected for decades, and then a carbon offsetter comes along, a carbon uh, like reseller comes along and says like, hey, you should certify this project as a carbon offset project and like sell these as carbon credits. That wouldn't be additional because the forest wouldn't have been protected in the first place. Like the trees would have always been there. Um, but a project that would be additional is, you know, for example, our clean cooking fuels project wouldn't have gotten off the ground without REN funding. And so that's an example of a project that's additional. Are all of REN's projects additional? Yes. Otherwise, they wouldn't be carbon offset projects. Yeah. Also, well, I know that um, Bloomberg just posted an article with ProPublica about uh, Disney and JP Morgan getting in trouble with uh, just like you call it like double counting, I guess, um, or not double yeah. counting, but they weren't additional. Uh, so they were protecting forests in the in Pennsylvania that had already been protected through like legal grounds. Yeah, it was like the green trees forest or something, like yeah. the green trees or something. Yeah, I remember reading the article and, and it's so frustrating to see, you know, so many scams still happen in the offset industry. Um, and it's really understandable that a lot of, you know, carbon removal projects are completely like removing themselves from the carbon offset term, even though like a lot of carbon offsets projects are still carbon removal. Um, it's it's pretty interesting to see that sort of phenomenon phenomenon happen. I mean, it's it's frustrating and it's disappointing, especially when the landowners like didn't even know what a carbon offset was before they were approached by the organization and like told like, oh, you could make a little more money if you just like label this as a carbon offset project. And they literally didn't change anything about their practice. Yeah. But yeah, on rent, all of the projects are additional. And it, it really does speak to the fact that you as an individual consumer have some due diligence to do on your own. Like you can't just even like if a project is certif certified by a third party, there's some amount of like, you know, needing to do your own research to make sure um, something is actually happening that says it's happening. But does REN do all that research for me if I'm going through Well, REN? obviously I'm biased. I'm so yes, but you really should do your own too. I mean, you can look, I mean, I can, I can share this with you after so you can include it in show notes if you'd like, but like the Stockholm Environment Institute offers a really good guide on how to do your own due diligence for offset projects. Um, but yeah, when you're looking for projects, you should look for permanence, or some degree of, you know, 10 to 100 year permanence at the minimum. Um, exclusivity, where there's no... What does that mean in terms of permanence? So if you fund a tree planting project, you want to make sure the trees are going to be there for a significant amount of time and they're not going to be cut down like the year, or, you know, the month after they're planted. Um, same with, you know, rainforest protection projects. You want to make sure the rainforest stays protected for a long time. Like it's consistent protection. It's not just like, oh, we'll go check it out one day. Like you give us funding for that and then like we'll leave and it gets like deforested the next day. Um, and then additional. So you want to make sure that, you know, the money that you're spending is actually going to a carbon offset project and not like a scam. Can we, if we go back to like the rainforest protection, how, is it, if I'm, purchasing carbon offsets am i having to if if my money is like on an annual basis like because the, the tree only holds so much carbon right? right but do i um do i get credit for that that amount of carbon every year or is it you can only purchase it once and then you have to move to a different section of the forest oh i see what you mean 
Um, so the way we do our counting for the rainforest protection project is we look at rates of deforestation in Peru. So the project is based in Peru and we look at average rates of deforestation in Peru, um, the most recent data we can get. And then every year that that part of the rainforest is not deforested is basically carbon that you've prevented from going into the atmosphere. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. Well, this is so interesting because like every year you're getting credit for that amount, but at the same time, like you're not removing that much on an annual basis. You're just preventing it from going in. Does that make yes. sense? And maybe I'm not understanding, right? Yes. So preventing carbon from entering the atmosphere, like avoided carbon emissions is just as good as carbon reduction. Because imagine like you have a forest and it gets deforested every year and there's a rate of deforestation. Eventually after like 10 years, that whole section of forest is going to be deforested. But if every year you can consistently say like, oh, we're preventing, you know, 2% of the forest from being deforested, then you're avoiding that 2% from eventually being gone from like, you know, the 10 year whole forest is deforested scenario. Do you envision a future where uh, these com- these countries that are like uh, have massive forests are are being paid to keep their forests intact? Similar to like it's almost like a commodity in the same way that like Saudi Arabia can produce oil, right? Because they they happen to be geolocated where there's oil. Can Brazil are is are people going to be paying Brazil millions of dollars, billions of dollars a year to keep their forests intact? That could be the case. Um, yeah, I haven't I haven't really thought about that scenario, but I mean it makes sense if you put a price on carbon. And these trees, you know, are able to store massive amounts of carbon and and support a massive amount of biodiversity. Like there is definitely incentive to pay countries to maintain their forests. But at the same time, like, you know, if you think about transitioning to a sustainable future, like the reason why these forests are being deforested in the first place is for cattle farming. And, you know, if people aren't really eating as much meat in the future, like maybe there's another use for the forest that doesn't involve, you know, like it's so unfortunate right now, like the, the most lucrative use of forests is just to deforest them and like use the land to like raise cows so that like Americans can eat a ton of meat. Um, but if Americans aren't eating a ton of meat, like what is the use for the forest? Maybe it's like about you know, maintaining the biodiversity of the forest for like sustainable tourism or something like totally different. So it really depends on, I guess, like what the, what the system, what the economic system looks like in the future. Yeah. Who, who do you think should be responsible for purchasing the carbon offsets? Like why the consume, why focus on the consumer instead of, I know Patch is another company in San Francisco working on like more B2B, uh, business to business, carbon offsetting. Stripe is now, Shopify is kind of in that field as well. Um, but Shopify and Stripe more focused on the consumer again. But like, what about like, should it just be, it's like JetBlue's job to offset their footprint and like I get to fly guilt-free or not guilt-free, but get to fly carbon-free or is it my job to fly and then purchase the offsets equivalently? I think it's your job as a consumer to make the best choices for you and for the environment, um, I guess within reasonable bounds. Like, I think it's kind of challenging for a consumer to force themselves to go, you know, like waste-free or like, you know, worry about like the, like not having plastic straws, like the, the really small, like, kind of almost like neurotic decisions that some people choose to make is I think admirable admirable to a certain extent, but like I personally wouldn't be able to emulate that lifestyle. But I think in terms of like broader strokes of like, okay, let me go check and see if my energy provider can switch me over to renewable energy easily. Like that's such an easy thing to do. And that's such a no brainer. Or like, let me see if like, you know, like my bank is investing in fossil fuels. Like, let me see if it's reasonable for me to transition to a green bank within the year. Um, or like, oh, when am I going to buy a new car? Or am I going to even need to buy a car? Like, should I go buy a used car or an electric car? Like buying an electric car is much more, 
I think is a much more sound investment than buying a fossil fuel car um, or a gas fuel, a gas car these days. Um, so I think as an individual consumer, like your choices do matter. And on a, on a, on a grand scale, like they're going to have a huge impact. Like there's going to be a, a, a huge value shift that's needed to, to get us out of this mess. But at the same time, like for sure, corporations need to take responsibility. Um, and, and, you know, like governments need to help fund faster development of renewable energy technologies or, you know, negative emissions technologies, um, so it's kind of a little bit of everything is needed uh, or a lot of everything is needed to get us out of this mess and individuals just play one part of uh, play, play one or part of, I guess what I'm trying to say is like individuals will play a key role. Um, but it's not about, you know, pointing fingers at one person saying like, you need to take full responsibility. Um, but I mean, it, it's clear that individuals want to do something and, and, you know, whether that something is going out and protesting and, and, you know, like getting your local government to like ban, uh, fossil fuel cars off your roads by like 2030, or, or if that's like, you know, electrifying your own personal infrastructure, um, there's all sorts of actions that can be taken. And as long as like that becomes a social norm to say, like, I care about climate, I care about putting a price on carbon. I care about, you know, like, a, a, a future where like everyone, um, you know, isn't like evacuating from their homes every summer because of a fire, <laughs> then um, then that's the role that individuals need to play. Switching gears a little bit, what about Ren? What what are you what are you most focused on right now for Ren in terms of like where your efforts are? Yeah, I would say for Ren, it's definitely a mix right now. I'd say we're always focused on growth just because we're still so early as a company. Um, and that's sort of the promise we're making our users in the first place is like, okay, we're taking this percentage of your subscription to invest into, you know, traditional like growth channels. Um, and so there's a lot of like figuring out what kind of partnerships we can have with newsletters or YouTubers or, you know, ways to get the word out like that this is um, something that you can do about climate. And then there's the product side of, you know, offering more ways for individuals to learn about how to reduce their footprint, how to get involved in political action. And we already have some of that. We have, you know, in the calculator, when you calculate your footprint, um, you get a carbon report. They'll tell you like, here are the easiest ways to reduce your footprint. Here are the most impactful ways to reduce your footprint. Um, we have our blog that has climate knowledge uh, and helps you learn about climate policy and, and, you know, like more complicated climate concepts, like, you know, what are, what is cap and trade or what are aerosols and that kind of thing. Um, and then we have a newsletter called climate camp. That's a weekly newsletter. They'll sort of take you through a climate journey of helping, um, helping you on ramp onto, you know, a more climate conscious lifestyle. So there's sort of all that stuff that's already happening. And then, you know, I guess the the real ambition for Ren is is building a long lasting sustainable brand that helps individuals lead lead a more sustainable lifestyle. It's a big goal. Big goal for sure. How much of what you do personally, uh, and maybe you can speak for Ren as well, but how much of what you do is to run a profitable business versus fight the climate crisis and uh, make the world more sustainable? Oh, I would say they're the same thing because they're just aligned. Like the more we have an impact, the more we grow, but we're not really focused on making money. Okay. So if Ren has a billion users, your lifestyle won't change. Oh no, I don't really, like, I'm not really on social media. I don't, I travel last year. I didn't really take a plane except to see my family and my, my newborn niece. Um, nice. You know, there's not really much that I find that's appealing and, you know, like 
fast fashion or, or extreme consumerist sort of lifestyles. I love that. I love that. First of all, thank you so much for your time. It's been really a pleasure. I've got a few uh, quick, quick questions. So short form answer. Uh, Favorite climate journalist or news source? Ooh, I love following Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson's Twitter. She's really great. She has an awesome podcast. Um, I also really respect uh, Dr. Jonathan Foley. He runs Drawdown. He's executive director at Drawdown, I believe. Jason Jacobs is one of our investors and he has an awesome climate podcast. He's grown the community like a ton in the past year or two years. Sorry, that was a lot of people. There's a lot of people to admire and respect in this space. It's it's really a cool space to be in. No, yeah, fantastic. Uh, what projects are, so do you offset your emissions? Yes. Uh, and if, if yes, what projects do you invest in? I use the REN Climate Fund, which is a mix of all four of our projects. I won't ask you what your favorite is. Uh, what would you say to people who are interested in working at REN? Who are interested in working at REN? That's an interesting question because we're not hiring right now. <laughs> but um, maybe maybe the question is, uh, what would I say to people who are interested in climate? Yeah, so I would say like, let's, let's say like that REN is hiring. Like what qualities are you looking for in individuals uh, when you're hiring? Or like, what are your, what are your, um, your principles at REN? Oh, I see. Well, I would say to go check out our charter, which I think you can find at ren.co slash charter. And if you agree with all those points, you're mission driven and you have the skills we're asking for, for the job, then for sure you should apply. When it comes to hiring, we've gotten really lucky. We've actually just hired REN users. Um, we just like, we, we post a job listing and then we get like a hundred or 200 people who apply. And then it turns out like the run users who apply are always the ones who, you know, understand the mission, the best or are most driven to, to make it happen. So that's awesome. I, I, maybe that's a weird message. I, I don't want to say like, you should become a run user to like yeah, yeah. be hired at Ren, but, um, maybe the thought is more so like, if you agree with our charter and if you believe in our mission, then, um, then for sure, I think you'd be a good fit. Fantastic. Uh, I had a great time. Thank you so much. Sure. One more question. Uh, what is your sustainability advice? Like something that you're just not ready to give up, even though you know it's not great for the world? Um, I have, yeah, I actually have one that's really embarrassing, which is that I really like beef jerky. Like I grew up, um, I'm Viet- so I, I grew up in Vietnam and Vietnamese beef jerky is like super tasty. A lot of like Vietnamese dishes are, you know, best with pork or shrimp. And so whenever I'm home for the holidays, this always happens. My mom always greets me with like a bag of beef jerky and like all my favorite Vietnamese dishes, which are all like pork based. And so I think when it comes to like diet, that's probably like my, my big vice is just like having this kind of cultural and personal attachment to my food. Um, but when I'm away from home, it's, it's less of a big deal. Cause I never make my food as good as my mom anyways. So there's no use. Um, and then that's probably, that's probably the one is my diet. And then maybe, yeah, maybe travel might end up being one, but I haven't really traveled much in the past two or three years, but you know, my, my sister lives in New York, um, and I'm in California and I, I really do want to see her like at least once a year and, and, or have her come to me once a year because, it's hard to maintain a relationship as we've learned this past year, really over zoom. Like there's not, there's only so much you can do. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the right balance is of, you know, flying over there or what I'll end up doing when that time comes and I can actually go. Sounds good. Well, we did a, we did an episode with a company called zero Avia who uh, is working on 
uh, hydrogen electric flying. So hopefully you'll be able to take that soon enough. That's awesome. Yeah, electric planes are like my number one thing I'm most excited about like in the next 10 years. Hopefully, <laughs> maybe not, we'll see. Mimi, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks again to Mimi Trans and Betty for joining us on today's show. You can find her on LinkedIn or at Mimi at projectren.com. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, original music composed by Climb One Band. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And if you want to join the conversation, which we would love, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Clubhouse at The Net Zero Life. We're really excited about Clubhouse, so check out our weekly office hours at 6 p.m. Pacific time and 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can also email me at Nathan at the and you can find links to all these platforms on the show notes. I want to hear from you. What are you doing to live a more sustainable life and how are you moving the world closer to net zero emissions? New episodes drop every Tuesday. Next week, we've got a high flying guest. He's the founder of a hydrogen electric aviation company. He's tackling the toughest carbon vice for many of us, including me, flying. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.